Good morning, church. Oh, I am on. My name is Todd Steele. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Transform. Am I loud? I feel like... Okay. <laughs> I'll scoot back a bit. Uh, like I said, I'm one of the elders here at Transform. Um, I'm not, if you're new or this is your first time, I'm not the regular teaching pastor. That's Pastor Mike Jacobs. He's away right now. Um, unfortunately, his wife, Sarah's grandfather, passed away. So they're at the memorial for that. So uh, please keep them in your prayers this week. Uh, they should return next week, um, unless the doors fly off of his plane. <laughs> um, this morning, I'm excited and a little nervous to talk to you guys about the passage we're going to cover this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our study in Mark, and we'll be picking up in the beginning verses of chapter 13. And this chapter, as a whole, many scholars believe, uh, dives into the subject of eschatology. What is eschatology? Um, it's a big, fancy word for the study of the end. Eschatology deals with the biblical studies related to how God will enact the last days of earth as we know it. Jesus promises us he will return one day. And eschatology looks at passages that refer to those events and tries to make sense out of them. And this is a subject that a lot of Christians feel very strongly about. And it's good to study the whole counsel of God, obviously, but this is a topic that causes Christians to argue and to divide and refuse to speak to each other. Let's think about that. The question isn't if Jesus is going to win. We know he's already won. Victory has been assured. All power and authority has been given to him. So it's not a question of if he's going to win, it's a question of when he's going to win and how he's going to win. And yet Christians will disfellowship with one another, they refuse to speak to one another, because their understanding of a text is a little different from each other. That's a little ridiculous, in my opinion. Because this is not a salvation problem. There are uh, about three major viewpoints when it comes to eschatology, and none of them fundamentally change who Jesus is or what he did for us. They all agree with the historically consistent interpretation of the gospel. Therefore, it is entirely possible that someone has a different viewpoint than you on this topic, and they're still a Christian. There are, there are reasons to divide. There are reasons to say, no, what you're doing over there is not what Jesus is doing. There are. But this isn't one of them. So if, if we could all, um, can we make an agreement with each other? If I say something today, or in the next couple weeks, Mike says something in the next couple weeks as he finishes the chapter, if you don't agree, don't leave. Don't leave just quietly, not even in, the, not, not like after quietly or anything. Um, come, talk to us. Come talk to me. Come talk to Mike. I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I'll buy you lunch. We'll open our Bibles and we'll talk about it. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I'll, I'll admit that. 
but before we decide to disunify with each other, let's, let's fight for one another's relationships. Let's fight for each other. Deal? Okay. We've all made the deal. Just can't back out now. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe I'm going to buy 85 cups of coffee this week. I don't know. Um, or, or John DeYoung and I were also doing a community group. Come to that and tell me why I'm wrong there. That's fine. Um, because here's the thing, and you might find this a little anticlimactic. This first chunk, this first 13 verses I'm about to cover, I don't think it's fully related to the end of the age. And you might, if you have your Bibles open, which you should, you'll probably see the title that says, The End of the Age. But the biblical authors don't put those titles in. And it's my opinion and the opinion of a lot of scholars who, again, have a consistent view of Scripture, that this idea is wrong. I think the passage as a whole seems to lead into the final end, but the context of this part of the passage doesn't seem like it's going there quite yet. As a, a brief summary, the beginning of Mark 13, the disciples, they're marveling at the temple. They're going, look at how great this temple is. And Jesus tells them it's going to fall. It's going to be torn apart. It will not last. And then later, they have questions about that. And Jesus answers them with a straightforward answer. A lot of times when people ask Jesus questions, we see in the scriptures he kind of tends to throw a curveball. But he doesn't do that for fun, or he doesn't do that because that's his method or his process. He does that because he's more concerned with people's hearts than the questions they're presenting. And the disciples' hearts seem to be pretty straightforward here. They're concerned about what Jesus said. They want to know more, and he tells them more, and that's the context. I will, we are going to talk about the specific passage that makes a lot of people think that this specifically is going is talking about the end um and and we'll get there and i'll tell you why um but this passage seems to be about what the disciples will experience in their lifetimes and how to handle it and the wisdom that transcends the disciples the scriptures um orientate us towards God. It tells us what to do in these situations. And that's what I think we're getting at here. So we'll get started. Again, if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 13, but maybe keep a marker or a bookmark there or something because we're going to kind of jump around a lot. Um, We're going to take kind of a little tour through the Old Testament. And I'm going to be reading a lot of passages and I could have made slides for it, but I didn't. So I'm going to have you guys just jump around. So, uh, Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it reads, As he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to them, Not one stone will be left upon another, thrown down. Across the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. Then he will deceive many. When you hear 
Wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. But it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. But you should be on your guard. They will hand you over to the local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me. As they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Um, so Jesus predicts that the temple is going to fall. And we know that in the year 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the Romans, having grown tired of Israel's constant string of rebellions against them, marched and sacked Rome. Or nope, they didn't. The Romans didn't sack Rome. The Romans sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They utterly destroyed it, including that Jesus and his unnamed disciples are talking about. Um, there's, there's a slide for, for this, Carson. Uh, the only other slide that there is. Um, <laughs> this, is uh, this is the Western Wall in Jerusalem, um, or it's also called the Wailing Wall, and it's the only part of the temple structure that, that still stands today. Uh, currently, the Temple Mount is home to the Dome of the Rock, which is an Islamic mosque that has deep meaning in their own faith, and therefore non-Muslims are not allowed to enter. Making this wall the closest a Jew can get to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was the central room inside the temple, which was the place where Yahweh rested. This is where his throne was. Even, and the Jews, even the priests, who are meant to be serving there, can get no closer to this wall which is why it's also called the Wailing Wall, because of the tears of anguish that are shed there. This is what Jesus tells the disciples are coming. And Carson, you can move on for that. Um, For a Jew who believes that they're following the Messiah, these words would be a shock. They thought the Messiah was going to take over, to set the world right, to have victory over the empires that conquered them. And they were right. That's exactly what Jesus did. But Jesus' idea of that and the disciples' idea of that were two completely different things. Jesus did conquer the world. But, and he did become king. But he did so by giving his life. He did, though, he did so by submitting to the powers. But then he was raised again. But to hear from the one who you believe is going to make the temple the center of the world, that that temple is actually going to fall, that would be shocking. That would be frustrating. Imagine we're Americans. Imagine the White House is, is, has been around. Imagine America is way older than it is, like 2,000 years. And we have 
uh, we have all this history and, and all this faith put in our national monuments. And then somebody says, that's going to fall and that will be no more. How would you feel? From the time of the tabernacle while the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, this was the dwelling place of Yahweh. It's where the sacrificial, sacrificial system took place, where the priests from the tribe of Levi served. It's where, if you were married or had a baby or any other major life event, that's where it was commemorated. It's where the feasts were centered. The temple was God's symbol, was the symbol of God's covenant, covenant with his people. And it, it served these functions in two things. It did two different things. It pointed backwards and it pointed forwards. It pointed backwards at the garden, back when Adam walked in the cool of day with God. But it also pointed forward to the coming Messiah, who would set right the world and reconcile humans with God and bring us back to that garden. The temple was first built in the form of a tabernacle during Israel's travels in the wilderness uh, before entering the promised land. It, so it was made to be mobile, able to be moved with the rest of the nation. And as they traveled, so it was made of, of tents. And we see the consecration of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 40. So if you would turn to Exodus 40 in your Bibles or your apps. Um, this is when God instructs Moses on how to set up the temple. And this, um, this is him following these instructions and setting up the priesthood. And we're going to start at the end in Exodus uh, chapter 30, 40, verses 38, 34. I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, so Exodus 40, 34. It says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Israelites set out whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle throughout all the stages of their journey. If the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and there was a fire inside the cloud by night visible to the entire house of Israel throughout all the stages of their journey. So after the tabernacle is, is established, Yahweh comes to live there, and the cloud comes to rest on the tabernacle and is filled with fire. Remember that image. Remember that as we move forward. The cloud and the fire dwelling in the tabernacle, revealing Yahweh's presence there where he is seated, seated on his throne. Because we see a very similar thing when the temple is ultimately built. So now I'm going to ask you to jump to Second, to second Samuel. Yep. Um, this is later after the Israelites enter the promised land and the monarchy is established through Saul and then David. David wants to build the Lord a more permanent home. He wants to build a temple in Jerusalem, not made of tents, but of stone. And he is told no. So Second Samuel chapter 7 reads, when the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, 
Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? Not dwell I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today. I have not instead dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, I have ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why have you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of Armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you whenever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I'll make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people, Israel, and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them, as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord declares to you. The Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of the kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows of mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Forever. Nathan reported all these words and the entire vision to David. So David ends up not being able to build the temple. But he's promised that his son will. That his son will fulfill that promise. Solomon. Is that passage only about Solomon? Maybe. We'll put a pin in that. But Solomon is the one who has the temple built. And when he does, and it's completed, we have a very similar picture of what we see in Exodus. So next, we're going to jump to Second Chronicles chapter 7. So this is after the temple has been built. Um, we get a lot of uh, numbers and specificities of how it's been built and, how, and the methods in which Solomon used to build it. Um, but here in Second Chronicles 7, we read, When Solomon finished praying, fire descended from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests were not able to enter the Lord's temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. All the Israelites were watching when fire descended and the glory of the Lord came on the temple. They bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshiped and praised the Lord. For he is good, for his faithful love endures forever. The king and all his people were offering sacrifice to the Lord's presence. So again, very similar scene. Fire fills the temple as the glory of, of the Lord comes to live there in the Holy of Holies. So that's the end of the story, right? Yahweh amongst his people. Everything's great. Israel always follows the laws of the Torah. They always honor the Lord. They never stray until Jesus arrives on the scene, right? No. It is almost, almost exclusively downhill from there. In fact, you could argue it's already been going downhill. We've just kind of hit the high points here and there. Um, 
But David and Solomon are kind of our best examples of the monarchy in Jerusalem at this point. And they mess up pretty big during their reigns. And every king after that gets worse and worse, with few exceptions. The kingdom eventually splits with the northern kingdom of Israel consisting of most of the 12 tribes who just utterly devolve into chaos and idol worship. And then the southern kingdom of Judah, consisting of just the tribes of Judah and Levi, they hold it together a little better. They have Jerusalem, they have the temple in their territory, and they uphold God's laws a little bit better. But they eventually fail to. Turns out the Israelites, while the Lord's chosen family, are still human, just like us. The same thing happened to them that happens to all of us when we try to do things on our own, when we reject God's wisdom and try to get in the driver's seat. So over a period of century, Yahweh sends prophets to confront the corrupt people, to try and get them to repent, to to warn them off of what will happen if they don't. However, those prophets are seldom listened to. So first, the Lord sends the Assyrians to invade the northern kingdom of Israel to carry them off to exile. And then a little over 100 years later, after witnessing that happen firsthand and several more warnings, the southern kingdom of Judah is invaded by Babylon and is also led into exile. The tribes of Judah and Levi will spend 70 years in Babylon, which will eventually be conquered by the Persians. And it's the Persians who allow the Jews to return home to Israel. They come back, and all of Jerusalem, and especially the temple, is in shambles. The process of rebuilding begins to a roller coaster of successes and failures. Turns out, not a lot changes. So the next passage we're going to look at is Haggai, chapter 2. Um, so if you want to turn there, it's one of the more minor prophets. It's, it's only a couple chapters, so it might be a little bit easy to, to miss. Um, I actually, I forgot to write down where it was. <laughs> and, uh, so I apologize. So uh, if you can find it, great. If not, I'll just read it. In Haggai, chapter 2, uh, they began to build the temple, and they're starting to get discouraged. So this is, this is the prophecy that's, that's given. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, who the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people who is left among you. Oh, sorry, to, to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you? Who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies, this is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid, for the Lord of armies says, once more in a little while. I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. Silver and gold belongs to me, 
This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. So Yahweh comes to the leaders to encourage them that their work is not in vain, that the next temple will be greater than Solomon's. This house will be greater than the first. The treasure of the nations will come fill this house. So the temple, second temple does get built, and that's the expectation. Fire, smoke, right? Yahweh comes to live with his people again. But if we turn to the book of Ezra, which is where we're going to go next in chapter 3, we get a different picture. Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10 says, When the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph, holding symbols, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. But many of the older priests, Levites and family heads who had seen the first temple, wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple. But many others shouted for joy. The people could not distinguish from the sound of joyful shouting from the sound of weeping because the people were shouting so loudly and the sound was heard far away. The elders that remember the first temple know that even by the time the foundation of this new temple gets built, the second doesn't hold a candle to it. It causes them to mourn even in the midst of the shouting and the celebrating. And later on in the book, when the temple is finished, it's just finished. They dedicate, they dedicate it, the sacrifices start back up again, but Yahweh doesn't show up like he once did. There's no pillar of fire or cloud of smoke. When the Old Testament closes in Micah, it leaves us with a question. Does Yahweh still live amongst his people? Does he still live with us? The next few hundred years, called the intertestamental period, are filled with conflict. And between the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, Israel never really gains its independence. And when the Romans take over and they put Herod in charge, um, I'm up here, you know I'm going to talk about Herod for some reason. (laughs) I'm the Herod guy, BJ's the guy who talks about blind people, I guess. Um, But when Herod's put in charge, he makes the temple a vanity project. He builds it huge, expands and renovates it, really just to try and please the Jews. Um, It comes because as he's building it, he's using Roman architecture and Roman builders. So he's literally filling the temple with Gentile symbols. Um, So that it really just frustrates people all the more. But it does clearly impress someone. As the disciples point out, back in Mark, which you can turn back, we're, we're done uh, running through texts. I hope that wasn't too much. Um, but the disciples are impressed. But it's still not the same. Yahweh still didn't show up. It could be argued, and I would agree, that the exile didn't really end. 
after all the Judaites and the Levites, they're the only tribes that get to go back in mass. The other tribes were still dispersed. Not lost. That's a theory people have. They weren't lost, but they were dispersed. This is in the whole context. This is in the disciples' minds when they hear Jesus say that the temple is going to fall. They think all this history and, and all this pain and suffering, they think they're with the Messiah who's going to come and set all of it right. And they have a very specific idea of how he's going to set it right. The temple, like I said earlier, is, in their minds is supposed to be the center of the world. And Jesus says, it's going to fall? So that's a very valid question. That's a very straightforward question. When they ask, how? He gives them the signs. He tells them what to look for. People are going to come to proclaim that they're the Messiah, and a lot of people are going to believe them. Wars, earthquakes, famine. But don't be alarmed, because we're just getting started. Things will get worse before they get better. But we are not to fear, because Jesus also tells his disciples what to do. But be on your guard. They will hand you over to the local courts. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as witnesses to them. And it is necessary that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you are to say. But whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you, but the Holy Spirit. It isn't you, but the Holy Spirit. Not them speaking. We have categories for the Holy Spirit speaking through them, uh, speaking through people, but they, they really don't. We see some examples in the Old Testament, but it's not all over the place. He's giving them a glimpse into the future. So, one more big jump, Acts chapter 2. This is where it gets good. I was, I was so excited to write this down. I know it's like paragraphs and paragraphs of text I'm just reading, but this is so cool, you guys. <laughs> so, Acts chapter 2 says that when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from the heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues of flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard him, them speaking his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Cretans, and Arabs, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? A sound of wind 
comes pouring into the room, and then fire appears on each of their heads. This is a clear allusion to Yahweh coming to live in his temple. Except now the temple is not a tent. It is not a brick building. The temple where he lives is in the hearts of his people. Amen? After 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have come from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price So glorify God with your body. This is not about diet and exercise. This is about fleeing sin and honoring God because he is alive inside of each and every one of us. And look back to the prophecy of David's sons. You don't have to turn there. Um, It was one we already covered. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make you a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, you, your descendant, who will come from your body and will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. But when he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love endures and will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Just about Solomon? Yeah, partly. Especially the, the bit where he does when he does wrong part. Jesus never did wrong. But overall, the Lord is referring to both Solomon and the coming Messiah, the coming son of David, who will set up a throne forever. Remember, the first temple, it was, point, it was meant to point to the future temple. And that is the church. This is also the end of the exile. Notice the nations listed in Acts 2. These Jews hail from where all the tribes from Israel were dispersed by the Assyrians. And again, I'm aware that there was a smattering of all 12 tribes in both the northern and southern kingdoms. But taking the scripture on its own terms, we don't see all the tribes gathered together until Acts 2. And in Acts 2, Peter goes on to teach a sermon that would lead most of them to submitting to Jesus as king. The exile is over, and Yahweh lives with his people. We can take comfort in knowing that no matter what our circumstances are, the Holy Spirit lives in us. Jesus is talking to his disciples in their time, but times have not changed, have they? Many have come and continue to come in his name, claiming to be Messiah. There's, there's countless examples of people wanting to steal the church's affections away from Jesus. And there's even the ones that don't outright claim to be Jesus, but they still make the same promises he makes. You need me to solve your problems. You need to watch my show, read my book, come to my church. I'll give you the answers. You just need to do whatever I tell you, and all your problems, all your woes will be solved. Guys, it's an election year, isn't it? Be mindful of the promises that are made to you because they just might be looking to steal your affections away from Jesus, to steal the idea away that you have Jesus living inside you. So I hope you're encouraged because we now go on to a list of not as fun stuff. 
wars, rumors of wars, nation rising against nation. Nothing, nothing like that going on right now, right? Nothing going on in our age, not two huge wars that everybody is super opinionated about. The world is falling apart, and we're just getting started. This is just the beginning of the birth pangs, as Jesus says. And, and this is that, that reference, um, that's the part of the passage that makes people say that this isn't specifically about the disciples' times or our times, that this is specifically about the end of the age, is because they believe it's Jesus looking forward to a reference in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, there's this odd picture of like this cosmic woman who's giving birth and a cosmic dragon come to eat it. It's, it's wild. Um, <laughs> and that could be it. That could be it. But it also needs to be considered that this, this phrase, beginning of the birth pangs, was a very common turn of phrase for Hebrew for Hebrews describing the Lord making the world new. For Hebrews describing that God is going to make things new again. Now, so we're kind of um, left with two choices. We can see it as Jesus looking forward to the book of Revelation, which he totally could, for, could be. Or we could see it as him making a reference that the disciples he is speaking to will understand in their specific context. Um, the book of Revelation, even John is here, the writer is here, we're not going to see that for 40 years after this. Um, we're, uh, there's this concept of, of biblical interpretation that says that it's for us, but it's not to us. Meaning, scriptures are for us. It transcends time and culture. It's for all time and all places. But it's still best read in the context that it was spoken and written. Does that make sense? That the best way to understand it is to understand it the way the original readers would have understood it. Um, so it seems to make sense that when Jesus says this is the beginning of the birth pangs, that he's talking specifically on how he is going to make the world new in their context and also in our context. We good? All right, now let's talk about giving birth. <laughs> would be like, oh, how gross is he going to get? Not gross, I promise. It, the way the world is going to be made new. The pain, the agony, the hours. It's a difficult and frightening process. I've witnessed four of them. I don't want to witness anymore. <laughs> but then what comes at the end? New life a new little baby that everybody in the room is instantly in love with. I've, I've never met a woman in my life who looked at their new little baby and said that wasn't worth it. That, that wasn't worth the cost or the pain. And in the same way, we see the apostles in Acts celebrate when they get flogged for sharing the gospel. They thought it an honor to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. You're going to stand in front of these governors and kings to be witnesses to them because the gospel must be preached to all nations. That means traveling. That means going to those nations. That means being proactive and preaching the gospel. 
fulfilling the temple function on what on pointing to what the garden was and pointing to who Jesus is facing kings and presidents and your boss maybe or your landlord i don't know fill in the blank listen god made everything good and then we messed it up and when i say we i mean all of us including you king who could behead me at any time he wants but we mess it up and god promises redemption and that redemption came through the man jesus of nazareth who is not just fully man but also fully god he lived a perfect life and then he was executed by the romans just like you O king that i'm standing before and he rose again on the third day and anyone who pledges themselves as king to him will have everlasting life and renewed relationship with him. Say, say that to a king. Say to a king, you have to submit to the higher king. And say that to a person who, again, like kings in those days, like they all thought they were descended from the gods. They don't have to submit to anybody. We think our presidents are arrogant now. Those guys all of them said that they were descended of some sort of pagan god that gave them divine right to smite anyone who got in their way. And it was the disciples' job to go stand in front of them and say, you're wrong. There's a king above you. And then he says, don't even go with anything prepared. Don't go with any notes or, or, study, uh, or study before. Go without a defense. The Holy Spirit will be your defense. We wouldn't walk into small claims court without being prepared. But we're to go in front of those who could kill us. Or even less. We live in the United States. Could fire us. Could ostracize us. With nothing but faith that the Holy Spirit give us what we have to say. With nothing but, in this, in their day and age, crucifixion on the line. But don't worry. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. God Almighty makes his home inside of you. He makes his home inside of me. There's no king we have to fear. He will give us what we need to say. If that gets us killed... Oh, well, gets us killed. I get to live with Jesus forever. What a shame. Matthew 10 says, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. If you fear God over man, there is nothing that men can do to you. On our final, the final focus for today, I'm going to look back at verse 12 and 13. Brother will betray brother to death. Father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, I was tempted to kind of bring this part of the passage up with the other not fun stuff. To kind of reorder how I expounded on it to get through the stuff that made us feel icky on the side on the inside and end on a high note hey 
You have the Holy Spirit, church. Yahweh's true temple is in you, and he lives among us. So there's nothing this world can throw at us that will separate you from him. And that's true. I hope you're encouraged. But also sometimes we just need to be encouraged to endure. Allegiance to Jesus means that all other allegiances come second. Allegiance to Jesus means that the closest possible relationships that we can think of might betray us. Our siblings, our parents, our children. They may grow to hate us. They may want to kill us for our faith in Jesus. Everyone around you may come to hate you. As John 15 says, if the world hates you, understand that. It hated me before it hated you. Following Jesus will often mean being hated. And don't get me wrong. This is the United States. There are few countries that are more friendly to Christians than this place. Even if, if we don't see it all the time, that's because our culture is kind of taking a shift towards post-Christian. It's still a million times better than almost every other place in the world. But if you, so if you live your whole life here, like your chance of being martyred is statistically pretty low. However, the values of Jesus' kingdom and the values of the world are diametrically opposed to one another. So if there's no friction, not even a little, that's an oddity. If there's no tension or pain between you and the world, that's, that's a red flag. One of, one of two things has probably happened in that case. Either you've insulated yourself. You're so insulated and distant from the world that there is no way it could possibly even know that you're there. There's nothing that could even reach you to make you the least bit uncomfortable. And listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting to eliminate sin in your life. But Jesus tells us to go into the world and preach the gospel. And you can do so without letting yourself become like the world. The other possibility is you look just like the world. You have the same values. You want the same things. You act the same way. Nothing about you even hints to the world that you side with Jesus. But look at Jesus' prayer in John 17. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus wants us to be in the world, but not of it. Some of us might be so afraid of being of the world that we refuse to be in it. Others might just be both in the world and of it, and we don't care. My prayer is both of my prayer is that if you're in either of those spots, you would repent. You would realign yourself with Jesus. Worship team, you can come up. And for finally, those of us who might know the hatred that Jesus is describing, who might feel the pain of a loved one who shakes their fist at God, who relationship and familiar ties have been broken because you've aligned yourself with Jesus. My prayer is that for endurance, you will run your race well, regardless of the adversity. My prayer is not for a lighter load, but a stronger back. 
but also that you would seek other backs, that you would seek others to help carry the load with you. As Galatians 6 says, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. If you're feeling burdened, if you're feeling pain, if you're feeling numb, maybe all you have is contempt for the world and you don't see them as Jesus sees them, let's pray together. Let's walk together. I say let's, I don't just mean me or Mike or someone else on the leadership team, even though we're all very happy to do that. But other believers as well who have the Holy Spirit, who also have Yahweh living in them as his temple. Let us encourage one another. Let us celebrate with you. Let us weep with you. If you're beat down and you don't know if there's any more you can endure, cry out to the Father. And let your brothers and sisters join in that crying out with you. Let's pray. Father, I pray, I pray you would just do that. That you would bind us together. That we would weep with one another. We would walk with one another. We'd laugh and cry. We'd take care of each other when we were sick, Lord. I pray that you would give us the endurance to run our race well, that our allegiance to you would come before all else, and that we would follow no one at all times, that we would know that you live inside us, and that there's nothing anyone can do about that. I pray these things in your name. Amen.